Hello and welcome to the EMJ podcast. I'm Simon Cully, one of the associate editors. I'm going to be taking you through a little bit delayed. I admit it's been a busy start to the year here in the UK with lots and lots and lots of patients to see. A little bit delayed, the February primary survey. Doesn't matter though, because it's all available online and you can go and read it in paper format. And if you've not read it already, then you probably should. So taking you through a little bit of what's been going on in the February edition and getting you excited about what's going on in the world of emergency medicine in the UK and around the world. Where do we start? Well, actually, it was Ellen Weber who did the primary survey this month. It's a great little primary survey and a great little paper. So we will start with teaching about how you think. Now, I have a big interest in this because... If you stop and think, think about thinking, metacognition, about how we make decisions in ED, we are really, really important diagnosticians, probabilisticians, whatever you want to call it. Most of what we do, and subsequently most of the errors that we make, and subsequently most of the brilliant diagnoses that we make, is all about thinking. And we need to think a lot more about this, actually. And it's certainly a skill which differentiates, I think, the great emergency physicians from the good emergency physicians. So we're going to think about thinking. And this is Damien Rowland, who's a friend of ours, who's done some papers this month. And sort of bringing out that idea that somewhere between getting into med school and leaving specialty training, doctors make a transition from being a complete novice to a physician capable of making diagnostic and treatment decisions more or less independently. And trying to explore how that happens, because it's very different when you speak to a medical student or even when you try and teach a medical student about thinking compared to when you speak to one of your more senior peers. Something changes. So there's two articles in this month's issue, along with a commentary by Damien Rowland, as I said, that attempts to shed some light on this murky metamorphosis, as Ellen puts it, which I think is a lovely phrase. And there's a study by Bowen et al. examining a cross-section of clinicians at different phases in their careers, looking at how decisions are made. And in this study, there's 15 paediatric emergency clinicians, consultants, trainees, nurse practitioners, and they were interviewed about their decision-making when treating patients under the age of five with a respiratory illness, something we'll all be familiar with. Now, junior clinicians were more risk-averse and relied heavily on guidelines and second opinions. Experienced physicians appeared to use more tacit knowledge and take more risks. I guess that's not terribly surprising, but it's interesting to, to put this out in the open. In the editor's choice section, we've got Adams et al. And they looked at 37 junior doctors who were asked to recall two recent cases and discuss how they approach their clinical decision making. And this is something we do in my practice is to really dig into how people make decisions, not just did you make the right decision? I'm actually more interested in people who have really good thought processes, even if they occasionally come to the wrong diagnosis, than people who are just lucky and guess. Anyway, in the language of dual cognition theory, Dan Carman stuff, the authors found that the trainees essentially described that throughout the diagnostic and disposition process, they used sort of type 1 intuitive gestalt heuristic type thinking, countered by type 2, the analytical thinking, to keep themselves and their patients safe. There's a high level of diagnostic anxiety seen in this group of doctors, which is interesting because, you know, diagnostic anxiety, I think, exists in all of us. And the author suggests that the teachers could do more to prevent premature closure, speed up learning of pattern recognition to decrease cognitive loads and routinely employ methods of reflection after a case to improve awareness of the reasoning process. Now, interestingly, I've seen some recent evidence about when you're seeing a patient on your own, you're more likely to make a mistake than if you see the patient with a medical student. This is a senior clinician, probably because when you see a patient with a medical student, you go back to more of a description of that type two analytical thinking. Anyway, the authors in this study provides a, a quite useful set of questions for the teacher of emergency physicians to walk the learner through the process. 
And to bring all this together, we've got Dr. Roland Damien's commentary on Have We Forgotten How to Think? It's a really good piece, and it challenges us all to consider if we're paying enough attention to this transition, this really important transition of how we go from novice to expert. Next, we're going to have a look at a paper about something which, again, is a big interest of mine, and that's Gestalt, or whatever that means. So it's kind of the antithesis of thinking is acting on instinct or Gestalt, but that is part of the type one thinking that Carmen talks about. And we've had a lot recently about physician Gestalt and several studies suggesting that Gestalt is about as good as many tests or decision rules. And it actually exists in things like the Wells score, you know, in the opinion of this physician is a P very unlikely, is a Gestalt kind of question. And Jeff Klein, who most of us know with his work in PE and around the Perk rule, again, which has Gestalt elements in it, um, he's been an advocate of physician Gestalt start for some time and he questions what it is about our patients that gives us this so-called sixth sense about whether they're sick or not because lots of people would argue that it's not magic it's just that you're picking up stuff which we're not necessarily writing down or expressing very well so you probably remember uh, Jeff's EMJ publication in which he demonstrated that patients who are sick in that case have a PE or a serious cause of chest pain have less facial reaction to stimuli, stimuli than those who are well Based on that finding, he hypothesized that patients who do more smiling and physicians perceive as smiling are less likely to have a serious diagnosis. Seems reasonable. So in this month's issue, we reveal the results of that study by Klein of 208 patients about to undergo a CT scan for PE. Now, the pretest probability of PE was estimated using the Gestalt method, so visual analog scale and the Wells score, and the physician's impression of whether the patient smiled during that initial examination. Smile positive. So patients' faces were also analysed with an automated neural network-based algorithm for happy affect. I'm not sure what that is, but it sounds remarkable. And not going to spoil the paper, but let's just say, don't let the smile fool you. The results may have you rethink your initial impression of that chipper patient in room three. So have a look at that. So this whole thing about Gestalt is really fascinating about how we make decisions because it is clearly more than just looking at objective quantitative physiological data. There is definitely something about qualitative data, this Gestalt feeling that influences what we do. And I think, I think I'm really pleased that people like Jeff Kleiner are trying to dig into what this means. Next, we're going to have a look at the shock index. And the shock index, if you're older than me, may remember it from when I studied as a medical student, really. And um, in fact, it was invented even before I was born, and I'm very old. So the shock index was introduced in 1967 as a prognostic marker for hemorrhagic and infectious shock. And it's shown quite a bit of promise as a marker of high-risk patients in several ED studies since then, having an association with increased lactate and another study, increased incidence of post-intubation hypotension. But it's not really been routinely adopted into EM practice. Nabil Haar and colleagues from the John Hopkins University School of Medicine looked at 58,000 patients seen in their ED over 12 months and demonstrated that increasing values of the shock index were associated with an increasing likelihood of admission and mortality. I guess you'd probably predict that. And a shock index of more than 1.2 was a very strong predictor of both inpatient admission and mortality. So the shock index is a remarkably easy thing to calculate. It's just the heart rate over your systolic BP. And if you can calculate a mean arterial pressure, you can certainly calculate a shock index. So have a think about that, have a look at it. And we've put a lot of complexity into scoring. Maybe we can also embrace something which is remarkably simple. Now, finally, we're going to have a look at a systematic review by Carlson and colleagues looking at whether dietary sugars are as good as oral glucose for patients with hyperglycemia and no IV, of which you do see these patients coming in the door and certainly in the pre-hospital environment and in the patient's home, it might be better to do things without IV. And the simple answer is no, they're not. 
so don't. However, knowing the bottom line should not dissuade you from reading this from an interesting paper. And it looks at some of your favourite confections. So a nice end on a sweet moment, thinking about chocolate and not getting diabetes. If you do get diabetes, don't eat the chocolates. But unless you're hypoglycemic, in which case, read the paper. It'll make a lot of sense. So another great month in the EMJ. Apologies for being a little bit late. That's my organisational stuff getting wrong top of me. And also an awful lot of patients coming to the emergency department requiring to be seen. I'm sure you've experienced this over winter as well. So keep loving your emergency medicine. Keep reading the EMJ. And of course, keep in touch via Twitter, Facebook. Send us an email. Send us a letter on paper. Gosh, we haven't seen one of those for some time, but why not? Write in. Handwritten, even. Never seen that before. Have a great time and we'll see you next month on the EMJ podcast. Bye.